You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Lawson Deming works in visual effects. And in 2015, he was tasked with digitally recreating a city that never was. A task not unlike rebuilding a Mesopotamia or a Babylon. Deming had some source material to go off of for this lost city. There are blueprints for it and detailed maps and, and models, architectural models. But it was up to him to put these maps and models together to render an image of Adolf Hitler's proposed redesign for Berlin. Germania, or Germania as it's now known, would be Hitler's ideal version of the capital of the Third Reich. This, you may say, is not a utopia. I agree. It was a utopia that my grandmother had to flee from. A utopia that was built, as many utopias are, on land that was already in use. For Hitler, a new capital would be a revision, like ethnic cleansing and genocide wasn't enough. He had to raise Berlin to the ground and start anew. This was his utopia. And Lawson Deming was digitally assembling it for the Amazon original series, The Man in the High Castle, which takes place in a world where the Axis powers had won World War II, which is a world in which Germania was built. And in this alternative world of Germania, the skyline of Berlin would mostly be taken up by one massive dome. I think it was something like 300 meters tall. It would have been the largest freestanding dome in the world that when there were 100,000 people inside that space, it would create its own atmosphere, and that there would be clouds formed inside the dome simply by the exhaled breath of 100,000 Germans. A space so massive, the breath of Nazis meeting under the inconceivably high dome would create its own weather system. This space would tower over everyone and everything. The idea of it is essentially to, to minimize the individual. And crowning the tippy top of that dome would be the symbol of Nazi power, the eagle, its talons clutching a globe. The message being, this is the power that grips the whole world. This dome would have been one of the most important buildings in Germania, the Great Hall, or the Volkshalle, I first saw a model of the Volkshalle a few years ago, and I was like, no way. It looks like a supervillain structure. And for Deming, the challenge was, how the hell do you make something this absurdly hubristic look real and not cartoonishly grandiose? One of the things we really were trying to do in the show is make a believable world. And you have these very imposing inherently almost unbelievable structures, how do we make sure that the marble feels like a real thing? Because the more it feels like something that someone could have made, the less it feels like uh, like science fiction. 
and the more it feels like a sort of historical fact or historical what if. Deming studied the marble wall of the UN building in New York because there's a ton of marble in Germania. He looked at freeways in Los Angeles and he went to Berlin. And he saw all the whispers of Germania that are still there. The designs of lampposts that they uh, built in Berlin have a very particular sort of an Art Deco uh, style to them. And there are avenues in Berlin that those lampposts still exist on that were going to be part of this, uh, this complex. But one of the biggest sources of inspiration to Deming, and our best hint into what Germania may have looked like, is a building that was actually constructed. It's still there in Berlin, and it's enormous, hiding in plain sight in the middle of the city. This is Nice Try, a podcast from Curbed. Our first season is called Utopian. It's about the perpetual search for a perfect place. At least someone's idea of a perfect place. Which, according to the etymological roots of the very word utopia, does not, in fact, exist. And thank heavens for that. I'm your host, Avery Truffleman. I've spent periods of time living and studying in Berlin. To some degree, I was trying to get to know the city where my grandmother was born. And at one point, my German was nicht schlecht. The last time I was there, I stayed with a dear friend and fellow audio producer, Louisa Beck. And she took me on a walk through a decommissioned old airport called Tempelhof. It's huge. And it's in the heart of the city. This is Louisa. So when you go, it actually feels like being at the ocean because you can't like see all the way to the other side because it's like so far and there's like a bunch of wind. Tempelhof is the most prominent remnant of Hitler's Germania. The airport was completed in 1937, and it is so, so huge. It's really surreal. Even if you don't know its history, you can kind of get a loose sense of what it was about. At Tempelhof, you can't look at the hangar buildings and what's left of the airport and not think like, oh, that must have been built by the Nazis. Tempelhof is a reminder that regimes are so much larger than individuals or groups of individuals. They change the land. They change the city. And that's by design. Scale here is really the ambition of Hitler to reshape his world physically in the same way that he wanted to reshape it racially, ideologically, and politically. So for him, architecture was a means to an end. But it was a very important means to an end. It wasn't a side object. It was part of that greater ambition for empire. This is Paul Jaskett, a professor of art history at Duke and the author of The Architecture of Oppression. And in Hitler's world, the architecture of oppression meant big, imposing buildings. In his autobiography, In Mein Kampf, Hitler not only lays out his racist ideology, he also goes over his vision for the future of Germany, including how its cities should look. In chapter 10, for example, he's thinking about the relationship between powerful regimes and powerful architecture. It is in certain specific places where he says the power of Rome was expressed in its architecture and expressed in the longevity of its architecture. Architecture is a clear way to express power and control. A giant stamp on the world with literal structures so grand and imposing and heavy that they can't be moved. Hitler starts to imagine some of these buildings specifically. In 1926, he sketches two models of a great arc for Berlin, 
inspired by the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, which is already huge at 164 feet tall. But Hitler's Great Arch would be bigger. Much, much bigger, of course. And that, in many ways, is why he renamed, or he was thinking of renaming, Berlin Germania, so that it wouldn't just be a city in Germany. It would be the very embodiment of the entire new German empire that he was creating. Hitler hires Albert Speer as Berlin's inspector general of buildings. A chief architect, essentially, but with more power. And Speer is the one who creates an extravagant new design. He manages a team of architects who lay out plans for Germania, bit by bit. And in translating Hitler's visions, Speer made them his own. This was Speer's big break, and he seized it by the horns. I mean, I think we should remember, he's in his 30s. He's a young architect. He's ambitious. He has not had a lot of commissions. And he comes up with a grandiose plan for Germania that really appeals to Hitler's megalomaniac vision. A design so audacious, Speer imagined even its ruins would retain their splendor for centuries to come, just like the crumbling majesty of the Parthenon. It was an idea he referred to as Ruinenwert, or ruin value. Speer envisioned a huge, wide avenue running right through the middle of Berlin. Within that north-south axis was to be the so-called Avenue of Splendors, a whole three-mile stretch cleared of traffic that led to the Volkshalle. It was not a practical thing. It was very much for show. In modeled images, the Avenue of Splendors almost looks like the Vegas Strip, on the Death Star. Like someone picked up all of Europe's most famous architectural landmarks, the Pantheon, the Boulevards of Paris, blew them up to five times the size, and then dropped them along a single three-mile avenue. It's incredible. And a little ridiculous? I mean, it's easy to laugh at it when it didn't happen. And just past the end of the Avenue of Splendors, past the Volkshalle, there would be Tempelhof, the airport of Germania, the gates to the world. The Avenue of Splendors was supposed to evoke a grand European past, and Tempelhof Airport was supposed to be the takeoff into the future. It reminds us that the Berlin plan, as much as we think about this as rebuilding the Roman Empire, was actually very much of its moment and very forward-looking, at least in terms of what other people were thinking of as part and parcel of a modern city. Tempelhof was designed by Ernst Zagabiel, one of the architects working under Speer. The main terminal was built in 1937 on an existing airfield. And, of course, as a requirement for Germania, it's huge. But it's low and sweeping, like an expansive fortress. Including the airfields, it's bigger than the size of Monaco. When you're there on the ground, facing this long, wide expanse, you're far more aware of the empire than your own body and self. But this structure wasn't just for the little people on the ground. Oh, no. If you're gazing down at Tempelhof from above, the airport forms the shape of the Nazi eagle. Hitler understood the power of associating himself with flight. It made him seem entirely modern and intellectual. We shouldn't forget that one of Hitler's claim to fame was being the first candidate that went around by airplane. So this is up-to-date, this is modern, this is sophisticated. This is all the things that often we don't associate with the Nazi regime. Back in the 1930s, air travel was magnificent and inaccessible. People would bring picnics to airstrips just to watch planes take off. So Tempelhof was built with PR potential in mind. 
The roof was like a stadium where people could gather and observe. Nazi rallies were held there at Tempelhof. It was the convergence of the Roman-inspired architecture of the city and the thrilling modernism of flight. And the direct product of the unspeakable violence of the Third Reich. We see, for example, that uh, approximately half of the forced labor concentration camps, and we're talking about 1,100 camps, were predominantly devoted to building activity, so forced labor construction. Thousands of forced laborers constructed armaments at Tempelhof in 1944, and prison camps mined and hauled building materials for Germania itself, like this one particular type of granite that Hitler really liked. We know that various samples were put before Hitler, and that these samples were all uh, white granite with black flecks. It's a very fine, um, a very fine grain to the granite, a very fine grain to those black flecks. And Hitler chose the one that he thought was the highest quality. This type of granite that Hitler picked was from a remote area in Bavaria, right by the border of Czechoslovakia. And by no coincidence, in 1938, the SS built a forced labor camp there called Flossenburg. And so that direct connection that we can really punish people and kill people, and we're talking by the end of the war about 30,000 or more people at Flossenburg itself, that we can punish these people by killing them and working them to death at the same time that we can achieve our goals of this new uh, neoclassical capital that's going to express our power. But that neoclassical capital never comes to fruition. Thank goodness. This is London calling. Here is a new flash. The German radio has just announced Hitler is dead. In April 1945, Hitler commits suicide. On May 1st, the BBC announces this news to the world. About the same time, U.S. infantry regiments liberate Flossenburg. Nearly 100,000 prisoners pass through the concentration camp during the war, but when U.S. soldiers arrive, there are only 1,500 people left. The SS had already forced 9,000 prisoners from Flossenburg to Dachau. And in the end, less than 3,000 would arrive at Dachau. All the others were executed in transit, or too weak for the journey. 1945 is the year of Hitler's failure. Hitler's vision of his utopia, in many ways, it ends here. Although he had already murdered millions of innocent people and destroyed countless more lives and shifted geopolitical order. And, as you know, he didn't complete Germania. But he certainly did some building. Like the death camps across Europe, the lampposts in Berlin, and the colossal airport. Tempelhof is 80% constructed before the end of the war. This massive spectacle of Nazi ambition. And it will not be abandoned or torn down. Not yet. It will be a structure for another power. The U.S. military. But we'll get to that after the break. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. 
Und so haben wir also Onkel Joe abgeholt. Das war also eine große Veranstaltung. Und das sind meine ersten Erinnerungen an Tempelhof. This is Wolfgang Schäche, an architectural historian from Berlin. Oh, he's so jolly when he says this. It's so sweet. As interpreted by Luisa Beck, my friend, who you met earlier. So Wolfgang was telling me that he picked up his Uncle Joe and it was this big event. And those are his earliest memories of Tempelhof. Wolfgang was born in 1948. And he grew up with all these positive associations with Tempelhof. This is a story of the Berlin airlift. After World War II, Germany was split into four territories, divided among four of the Allied powers who won. There was a Soviet zone, a French zone, a British zone, and an American zone. Because Berlin was the seat of Nazi power, the city itself was also split into four territories. But in June 1948, the Soviet Union blocks land access to the city, and the Western Allies must support Berliners through alternative routes, like from the sky. The operation carried out by the Royal Air Force and the United States Air Force to supply two and a quarter million people of Berlin with food, coal, and other necessities of life. This is tape from a 1949 film by the British government called Berlin Airlift, the story of a great achievement. I would add it's also the story of one of the earliest major conflicts of the Cold War, but, you know, it's not as catchy. Anyway, Wolfgang's family and millions of other Berliners counted on these airlifts. Das habe ich natürlich 1948 zu 49 nicht. Here he's telling me that in 1948 and 49, he didn't realize this because he was a baby, but his parents later told him that they received these care packages, as they were called. And especially for newborns, they contained really important supplements to baby milk. And he says that his parents are really thankful for them. Wolfgang lived in West Berlin during the land blockade. He was close to Tempelhof, which was one of three small airports in the city that were receiving tons of food and mail and coal and supplies, all delivered by the Allies with their very impressive planes. The RAF York load nine tons. The Halifax over six tons. The Viking over three tons. And it really was pretty impressive and triumphant. The Berlin airlift lasted for more than a year, and it carried 2.3 million tons of supplies into the city, like formula for newborn babies, but also candy for little kids. For Berliners, Tempelhof was an access point to desperately needed care. There were so many planes landing daily that Tempelhof runways actually started to crumble under their weight. So the Americans built two new runways, and Tempelhof became American territory and a stage for American achievement. The most outstanding transport achievement in the history of aviation. The airlift carries on. The blockade ends in 1949, but the Americans stay in Tempelhof, and Tempelhof itself becomes more and more American. Und so sah man also nur und ausschließlich amerikanische Flugzeuge, nämlich damals noch von der Pan Am, die es ja auch leider nicht mehr gibt. He says that you saw only American airplanes. Pan Am was the American airline that flew to Tempelhof. 
And so, as a result, a lot of American symbolism showed up there. Inside, there was a sports area and a club area and a casino area. The Americans also took a symbol of Nazi Germany from the airport. There's a statue of an eagle that crowned the departure hall. The Americans took that to West Point around 1960. Wolfgang told me it was a loot, so to speak, or a victory trophy. Tempelhof becomes the American portal into Germany. It's where all American leaders land and depart with fanfare. It's where all the American planes with all their power and capacity sit proudly. Good morning. It is just moments now until President Ronald Reagan officially greets the people of Berlin. The president's plane, Air Force One, touched down just moments ago at West Berlin's Tempelhof Central Airport, which is under the control of the U.S. Air Force. President Reagan is visiting Berlin to help the city celebrate its 750th anniversary and will make a major speech at the Berlin Wall in which he is expected to challenge Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev to tear down the Berlin Wall. I wonder if he does it. Anyway, the Americans get so proud of Tempelhof. It's kind of like Hercules wearing the skin of the lion he slayed. It's all glorious and triumphant. With this airport, Americans go from feeding Berlin to fighting for its reunification. It becomes a symbolic battleground in the global fight against communism. By the way, that eagle the Americans brought to West Point They bring it back to Berlin. There still isn't a proper explanation where it's now displayed. The one that's there is completely misleading, he says, and it normalizes the historical context. The Americans hold Tempelhof for decades, through the Cold War. And then the Berlin Wall came down, and the Americans leave. Tempelhof becomes a local airport, mostly for regional flights. It's prime real estate, after all, central in the city, and it's super convenient. Until 2007, when there's a new airport in town, the Berlin-Schoenfeld International Airport. Now Tempelhof is small, by modern standards. And to focus on the expansion of Berlin's bigger, newer, international hub, the Federal Administrative Court of Germany rules that Tempelhof, along with another small airport in Berlin, should be closed. And... Man, German history is so full of contradictions. The Berliners really, really don't want to lose Tempelhof. In 2007, the singer Gunter Gabriel wrote that song, Hands Off Tempelhof, to wax poetic about his memories of the airlift. He was six years old during the blockade, and he sings about all his memories of bubblegum and candy being parachuted down from the sky. To Gabriel, Tempelhof was a fond memory from an otherwise bleak time, and many Berliners agreed. Over 200,000 residents gave their signatures to push for a referendum on the decision to close Tempelhof. Even Chancellor Angela Merkel voted to save it, arguing that it was a part of Berlin's history, and also that it was a useful regional airport. She's very practical. Yes, it seems crazy that Berlin would want to keep this structure on an airfield the size of Monaco in the middle of the city, which, by the way, was built by Nazis. But as you know, the airport closes. And the building remains. Still imposing and mighty. 
even as a ruin, just as Speer intended. And all around it, the land becomes something else. It's now a park, a massive, massive park. It is kind of a weird feeling, like this is a building that was built by the Nazis, and then like Berliners next to the hangars on this field are just like enjoying life. Luisa goes jogging there. A lot of people do. And they walk their dogs, and they have picnics, and they put on performances, and they bring their children. And then, like, you still now see, you know, these, like, makeshift things, like like this little playground where you see kids playing. When Luisa and I were walking the vast field and the sun was setting, we crossed paths with a Turkish wedding procession, replete with horn players and drummers. It was awesome. All around Tempelhof, vibrant, modern Berlin is pulsating. It's like Tempelhof has become Germania's exact opposite. It's a massive space that is just open for anyone to walk through and interact with friends. You know, it like totally has that same totally. massiveness, but yeah. it's blank. Tempelhof field is like the anti-Tempelhof. It's like the field is like giving Tempelhof the finger and being like, "Fuck you! I'm doing my like, <laughs> I'm I'm doing my creative Berlin thing, and you can like." Go be your historical, eternalistic, like, lying structure. And it couldn't get more anti-Tempelhof than this. In 2015, when I was there, Tempelhof was used as emergency refugee housing. It was full of people fleeing persecution from all over the world. Although it wasn't a good place to live, not even temporarily. I mean, no one likes sleeping in a regular airport. Tempelhof's hugeness made it echoey, and every single movement magnified into space. It was nearly impossible to be comfortable in what became Germany's largest refugee shelter. Now the main building is slowly being converted into offices and creative event spaces for tech companies and startups. But refugees still live in the corner of Tempelhof Field, now in modular homes. They're these white structures you can see if you're biking around or visiting any of the quirky festivals and circuses and parties that pop up on the sprawling airfields. And that's a weird thing about Tempelhof, too, because you do have this, like, really unchanging, rigid structure next to this field, which is always changing, and which is, like, so alive and organic, and, like, people are doing some different weird thing every time you come back, and it makes it so interesting. There's a lot of talk about building housing on the airfields. After all, Berlin has a housing shortage, and Tempelhof takes up an obscene amount of space. It's really surreal. There's signage within Tempelhof Field that talks about its history. But actually, the story requires many, many plaques dispersed along a walk you can take. Because Tempelhof has a long and complicated story. Much longer and more complicated than we've talked about here. And like, is this whole story something people are going to want to read about while they're out jogging or walking their dog? Is this enough? It's a design question, yes, and a moral one. One we all have to ask. You know, I'm living right now in Durham, North Carolina, so I'm living in a state that had a history of slavery um, and that we have buildings all around us or sites all around us in which enslaved people lived, and yet we don't know them, we don't mark them. Some we do, but very few. 
And so what do you do with those difficult paths? I mean, one could say there's hardly a culture in human society whose main buildings are not in some ways symbols of some social hierarchy, if not outright oppression. So what are we supposed to do about that? Paul Jaskett asks the ultimate question here. And producer Megan Kinane kind of handed it back to him. If we study World War II, we'd study this regime as a way to learn about power and like as a way to kind of as humans be like, how did this happen and how does it not happen again? Like, is this something that is instructive to to how we address and confront power and and um, and hate today? I think what we miss if we don't pay attention to this is the absolutely deep systematic nature of this regime. And when I say systematic, I mean it's a system and it goes all the way through. It's not just a few racist individuals at the top. It's not just a few businessmen that were taking advantage of it from the side. It's not just an architect here, an architect there. After the war, the architect, Albert Speer, was the only Nazi leader to admit guilt in the Nuremberg trials. He was found guilty of war crimes and crimes against humanity for the use of forced and slave labor. But because Speer denied that he knew about the Nazi concentration camps, instead of the death penalty, Speer served 20 years in jail. And after his release, he wrote a best-selling book, his autobiography, Inside the Third Reich. He gave extensive interviews to the BBC, to historians, all maintaining that he was this sort of clueless man on the inside, close friends with Hitler, but in the dark about the most evil of his destructive visions. It's hard to know the devil, Speer's purported to have said, when his hand is on your shoulder. He's the intellectual. He's the one that's really not publicly anti-Semitic. He seems to be the gentleman. He's well-educated. And Speer made full use of that in the post-war era. And what that meant is that while people said, oh, these other crazy buildings were, Speer was just deluded into doing this, that it actually turns out that no, Speer knew exactly what he was doing. The truly damning evidence doesn't come out until 2007. A letter that Speer wrote in 1971 is uncovered. In it is the line, there is no doubt. I was present as Himmler announced on October 6, 1943, that all Jews would be killed. Albert Speer himself died in 1981 at the age of 76. His New York Times obituary reports that in his last years, Mr. Speer lived quietly and comfortably in a rustic cottage his father built in the hills near Heidelberg when his son was born. Although Wolfgang Scheche, the architectural historian, went there once to interview Speer and says that this cottage was more of a full-on mansion with a massive gate inscribed, A. Speer. He wasn't in hiding at all. Speer was handily able to distance himself from an evil system he was not just participating in, but perpetuating. It's chilling. It spells out so clearly that Nazi Germany's worst atrocities, and many atrocities the world over, were not only the ideas of singular evil men. They were supported and enacted by systems, by groups of people who woke up in the morning and went to offices to work on it. We try to recount these stories in monuments and plaques, as though history was a grandiose series of battles and not something enacted in nine-to-fives. 
And in the meantime, more buildings go up. Land is moved. A patchwork of monuments and plaques can't keep up. Because we're all surrounded by so much new development. So many rising towers are transforming the faces of the cities around us. It's difficult to keep track of all the forces at play. To know who they were built for, and who paid for them, and which ones intend to do good. Because at the end of the day, all structures are, in some ways, ideology made manifest. They're so much bigger than any of us. You just look around and feel so small. Next time, a spectacular glass structure rises from the Arizona desert. Inside, there's a fully functioning rainforest, a savanna, an ocean with a coral reef, and some hidden skeletons of an experiment gone awry and a failed utopia eerily predictive of our own changing planet. Special thanks this week to Louisa Beck for her production support from Berlin. Thanks to Imka Ehlers for her additional translation service. Audio from The Story of a Great Achievement came from the National Archives of the United Kingdom and is offered under an open government license version 3.0. Much of our research for this episode comes from Speer, Hitler's Architect by Martin Kitchen, and The Architecture of Oppression, the SS, Forced Labor, and the Nazi Monumental Building Economy by Paul Jaskett. And shout out to Kyle James, whose piece on NPR about Tempelhof's closure is where we first heard the magnificent Hands Off Tempelhof song. And if you like this episode, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend. Nice Try's producer is Megan Kinane. Our associate producer is Diana Buds. Our editors are Audrey Dilling and Lisa Pollock. Original music and sound design by Greg Pliska. Gautam Shrikajan is our engineer. Our showrunner is Art Chung. Our executive producers are Nishat Kurwa and Kelsey Keith. Nice Try Utopian is a production of Curbed and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Avery Truffleman, and utopias do not exist. <laughs>